house and uh, we fed them nuggets and, and french fries, which is the, the go-to uh, dinner for, for young neighbor kids. And uh, while we were there, while they were there in the house, uh, Annie and I were sitting in the living room and we could hear upstairs um, the sound. <coughs> <coughs> Shortly thereafter, we kicked them out of our house. Um, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, uh, a couple of our kids uh, caught whatever the neighbor kids had. And so uh, they've got the little cold. And so they woke up saying that their throats were hurting and all of that. And, and we will never invite them to our house again. Um, <laughs> But needless to say, they, they wish that they were here. Uh, we had such a wonderful time uh, last time that we were here, and uh, we're so grateful uh, for you. We're so grateful for uh, your, your common bond, your common love uh, for the gospel and uh, for, the, uh, for the nations. It's so great to, to hear as we're praying, um, to hear of uh, your work in Malaysia and your upcoming work in Uganda. Um, I particularly uh, am, am very grateful for the work uh, that y'all have done in Baltimore. Uh, I think y'all, if you, if you don't remember, last year, I think one of the houses where the Baltimore trip stayed was a parsonage that the church that I used to pastor Owns. And so it was cool. We were here last time and we could see the slides up on the screen of, of, uh, of, of your, uh, your trip to Baltimore. And I'm looking, I'm, hey, I know that house. That, that's, that's where we used to live. Wow, that's weird. <laughs> Seeing you know, other people in our house, that's weird. But, but it was so cool to, to see that connection and to see that this, was, uh, this, is, this is your heart. This is uh, what you love to do. And, and it is so great to see that. Uh, we, uh, have, we pray for y'all often uh, for uh, the work of the gospel to continue from this place uh, and that y'all will continue to reach your neighbors and reach the nations with the gospel of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, uh, as you heard, uh, we are in Luke 17, and uh, I wanted to begin in our study of Luke 17 uh, actually just letting y'all know a little bit about us, just a little bit of a family update. Uh, we have since, uh, since our time here, we moved from Wake Forest to Youngsville. I know, I know, we're living dangerously these days. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, we went all the way over to Youngsville. Um, we actually live a little bit closer to here. It's about a 15-minute drive from here. Uh, if you know where Darius Pierce is on Youngsville, we're, we're right off of Darius Pierce. And, uh, and we've got this wonderful house. As I've already mentioned, our neighbors whom we love unconditionally and um, and uh, and it's it's just been great to uh, to be there but I, I remember the whole process as we were as we were going through uh, the, the the move and then we're, we're thinking about uh, uh, leaving from Wake Forest and and getting a little bit further out uh, out where it's a little bit more wide open and and I remember uh, we, we went from house to house and we were just looking at different places and and our realtor was wonderful she was very patient with us uh, when we saw this house we said this is the one that we want to we want to live uh, in for a long long time I want grandkids to come and visit that house uh, uh, you will bury me <laughs> right 
plant outside of this house. Uh, I just really, really love where we are. When she found it, and it was so great, you know, uh, uh, I remember going to closing, and and, and, and we're sitting there, and we're signing our lives away, and, and it was just great to, uh, to, to have that feeling of this is our house. We, we have our own place now. This is great. And we're, I'm hugging Annie, and we hug the realtor. She was so nice, and she was so kind. And as we go over to the house, we get our moving truck, and, and, and we're starting to bring things in, all right? But a weird thing happened. As we were moving our stuff from the uh, moving truck into the house, a, a mysterious truck pulled up right behind our moving truck. In fact, it was about the same size as our moving truck. And a couple of guys got out of the truck and they moved into the back and pulled up the latch and, and we noticed there's a whole lot of furniture in that truck that was not our furniture. And we're wondering what in the world is going on here? After about a few minutes, uh, a, a, a car drove by, and we recognized that car. That was our realtor's car. And our realtor got out of the car, and she started giving orders to the guys with the other truck about where to move the furniture. And, of course, as you would expect, Annie and I are kind of scratching our heads going, what in the world is happening right now? And so we asked her, you know, what, what are you doing? And she said, well... I figured, you know, we did such a great job finding this house. I didn't want to leave you, and I certainly didn't want to leave this house. So uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't mind, um, they're going to move it over. Uh, and in fact, you, you know, hey, movers, you guys over here, uh, my room is the one with the biggest bathroom and the biggest closet. That one is mine. And, and of course, we're standing there puzzled. By now, you're probably figuring out that this is not what actually happened. Uh, but what if that did happen? I mean, would anybody go to your realtor, assuming you're not married to your realtor, because I've, I've done this example before, and somebody's raised their hand, or like, I live with my realtor. Well, I mean, come on. <laughs> but assuming you have no relationship to your realtor, you're, the only relationship you have to your realtor is your realtor found you the house that you wanted. Would you provide space for your realtor to move in? I mean, would that be the reward for finding the house? You say, wow, you did such a great job. I mean, I am so amazed at your skill. I'm so amazed at your, at your uh, listening to us and knowing exactly what we wanted and all of that. You know what? Here, you can have the guest bedroom. How many of y'all would do that? How many of y'all have done that before? No? No? No one has your realtor living in the guest bedroom? No? Why? Anybody? She was just doing her job. You, you don't give her a, a, an extra room. You don't treat her as if she were a member of the family. I mean, you may say that. You may say, oh, my goodness, we're, we're like family now. No, you're not. I mean, you're not going to buy her groceries, you know, you're, you're not going to, you know, uh, pay her medical expenses or anything like that. I mean, that's, that, it, it's not true. You're just saying that. Uh, but, but think about that. We would not expect that from, uh, we would not expect a realtor to demand that. And we certainly would not expect to offer that for a realtor. The realtor was, as you said, just doing her job. 
It's amazing when we think about our relationship to the Lord. When we think about the commands that God has given to us. That we think that if we have obeyed our Lord, if we have done what, we, what he has commanded, that, that we ought to get some type of special treatment from the Lord. We should get something. I mean, we should get a little bonus, you know, for, for, for doing all that he commanded. But yet this story here from the Lord himself says, just as weird as it would be for a realtor to move into your house, that's how weird it should be for you to expect some type of special treatment for doing what the Lord commanded you to do. You see over here? Look at this, verse 7. Which one of you, having a servant tending sheep or plowing, will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Notice he says, which one of you having a servant? In other words, he says, all of you, just like as I, as I just did, for all of you, nobody would do that. Nobody in a first century Israel uh, uh, context, Jewish context, would say to a servant after they have done all their work out in the field with the sheep or out in the field with the plowing and the ground and the crops would come in uh, after they're all done and say, hey, you know, you've done a great job. You know what? How about you come over here and sit right next to me, the master of the house, and, and let's have a meal together. Nobody would do that. He says instead, verse 8, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat, get ready, and serve me while I eat and drink, and later you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he, is, because he did what was commanded? Notice the, the response here, the application in verse 10. In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are unworthy. We are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. Now, I say that in our 21st century context, and I'm sure that there are many of you that hear that and go, ah! unworthy, worthless. I mean, that, that damages my, my self-esteem. <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel offended that Jesus would look at me and say, you are worthless. And there are a number of reasons for that, right? Theologically, don't you love us, Jesus? Aren't you just a few chapters from now going to lay down your life on the cross for us? So then how can you say that the proper response is, we are worthless? I don't, I don't get it. Or, or even more, in our Western, uh, highly individualized society, to say, I've only done my duty, we, we, we again respond, eh, but I thought we were all special. I mean... I spent my whole life hearing Mr. Rogers tell me that. <laughs> you know, and, and now you're, you're just, Jesus is saying, no, you're not. Huh? <laughs> but, but Mr. Rogers was so nice. <laughs> and Jesus, you're not being nice right now. You know, well, what, what do we do with this? What, what does he mean when he says, 
worthless. That's the proper response. Well, think about it. First off, recognize you don't receive any special treatment because you haven't done anything special. You're doing exactly what the Lord commanded. That's what he said in verse 10. In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. You didn't do what you did because you were special. You did what you did because you were commanded. You did what you were supposed to do. Now, I may step on some toes here, so brace yourselves. Um, but I don't totally understand the allowance culture. And apparently I'm done. All right. <laughs> so so I, I may just walk with me here for a little bit. So, so you washed the dishes, and you took out the trash, and you cleaned your room, and you finished your homework, and... And I'm supposed to pay you for that? How much do I get paid for doing all of my housework? Now, maybe a little bit of this is parent envy, I guess. I don't know. Um, and, of course, the kids will respond, it was your money to begin with, duh. <laughs> so, so you did already have the money or else you wouldn't have any money to give to me. So, yeah, uh, it's just business. It's just business. But you think about that. We, we have this kind of allowance culture, even in our churches, don't we? I mean, I've, 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 I read my Bible every day. I, I pray every day. I, I'm, I'm at least generally nice to my fellow church members. I, you know, I, I, I try to be a good neighbor, you know, in my neighborhood, and, and, I, and I work really hard. So, God, I mean, I mean that's got to amount to something. I should get something, you know, I mean, some type of appreciation for, for, you know, my many, many years of hard service, right? No. You're doing everything that the Lord commanded you to do. Also, recognize this. We are unworthy servants. Remember who you are, or maybe a better way of saying it is, Remember who you were. Remember, we have no business wagging our fingers to God saying, I, should, I, I demand a raise. <laughs> you demand a raise? Do you remember who you were before Christ found you? Do you remember who you were before, before the Lord came down in your deadness and, and breathed life into your soul again? Do you, do you remember that every single heartbeat is his heartbeat? That every single breath from your lungs comes from the mouth of God? Do you, do you remember that while you were sleeping last night, you were utterly vulnerable? You did not keep yourself alive while you were asleep. The Lord was the one who kept you alive while you were sleeping. Do you realize that with all that you have at your disposal to serve the Lord, every last bit of it comes from him? So then, 
what exactly do you have as any type of leverage against the God on whom you are 100% dependent? We are worthless servants. We have only done what we were commanded. Now, why is this important? Jesus is giving us this, this parable here. And as you heard, uh, this parable is not in a vacuum. He didn't just drop this here. And Luke certainly doesn't just drop this here in his gospel. This has implications for everything that's going on in this section. Okay? We don't have time to get into this, but I encourage you when you, when you get home to open your Bible. Start in Luke 15, uh, which is where uh, Pastor Michael started in, uh, in Luke 15. Start there. And just walk your way all the way through to where we are right here in Luke 17. If you notice in Luke 15, the scribes and the Pharisees are upset at Jesus. Surprise. And and they say in there, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Which just sounds, maybe it's because I'm American and and every season is political season in America, uh, that this sounds like some type of attack campaign. I mean, can't can't you just imagine this being a commercial Right? You got the, the ominous music. Right? And this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, and you just and you just see Jesus in black and white hanging out with prostitutes, you know, and and and, and drug dealers and, and all of these folks that he's hanging out with, extortioners and tax collectors. Do you think that he's qualified to be Messiah paid for by the scribes and Pharisees? I mean, you know, something like that, you know. I mean, this that's what this what this looks like. Jesus spends three chapters, chapter 15, chapter 16, and all the way into chapter 17, responding to that. (laughs) It's awesome. Just just a little word of thumb. Um, If you're going to slander someone, you probably don't want to slander Jesus. Okay, because he is going to take you behind the woodshed like he did the scribes and Pharisees here. And, and, and you, will, you will very much regret this. And so three chapters of Jesus just going off on the scribes and Pharisees for what they did. But here in chapter 17, he turns to the disciples. Same context, same conversation. He turns to the disciples and he warns them about the same things that are um, uh, uh, symptomatic, if you will, of the Pharisees in chapter 15 and 16. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, you could wind up being a scribe and a Pharisee yourselves. And so he reminds them, you are unworthy servants. Don't get caught up in the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Don't don't find yourself trapped in this sense of entitlement, this this sense that you deserve some type of raise from Jesus just simply because you were doing the very things that he commanded you to do. If you know the story of the older of the uh, the, the lost son, the prodigal son in chapter 15, you remember the older brother where the older brother said, look, I've been with you all this time. I've been faithful to you. I've been doing everything that I'm supposed to do as a good son. And you never gave me anything in return. Yeah, don't be the older brother. The older brother who thinks that all of his work should amount to something before the Lord. No. It doesn't, not before the holy, holy, holy one. There's some implications with this story. 
this implication with this sense of understanding your unworthiness before the Lord. There's two things that the Lord uh, shows us here. Two implications. This has implications for how we deal with others. And this has implications for how we deal with God. For how we approach others and how we approach God. Okay? So, how, do, how does this affect our approach to others? Look at how the story begins in, in verse 1. The Lord said to his disciples, Offenses will surely come. They'll certainly come. But woe to the one through whom they come. Uh, the Christian standard here says offenses. The English standard says temptations. Same concept, same word here. Uh, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. He says it will be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, which is very mafia of Jesus. But anyways, that he would be thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. Don't be the one who causes any of these little ones. I would assume he's talking here about any immature uh, Christians, any immature followers of Christ. Don't be the reason that they stumble into more sin. Instead of that, instead of creating a culture where it's easy for people to stumble into sin, rather create a culture where we deal with people's sin. Look what he says, verse 3. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must Forgive him. Somebody comes over to you. They're upset at you. They don't like what you did. So they just whack right upside the head. <laughs> What'd you do that for? That is not the way that you handle conflict. You need to repent. You know, now that I think about it, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. I forgive you. 20 minutes later. Whack! Did, did you just hit me again? We just talked about this. No, you don't do that. That's not how we resolve conflict. You know, you know what? You're right. You're right. I shouldn't have done that again. My bad. I'll take it back. You forgive me. Yes, I forgive you. 20 minutes later. Whack! I mean, seven times. That's what he says. Seven times. You sin against, the, if a brother sins against you seven times in a day. I mean, you, you would think if a brother sins against you seven times in a day that you'd probably find another place to be, right? Uh, why are you still there? Um, you know, but they, they do. Seven times. If they sin against you seven times and they repent seven times, forgive them seven times. And you go, just like the disciples, you're going, ah, ugh. I don't know about that, Lord. I mean, there are plenty of commands that I love, but this one. And they ask this. Look at verse five. Increase our faith. Lord, I'm going to need an upgrade. <laughs> you're you're going to have to help me out on that one, Lord, because I, I don't think I have enough faith 
to handle somebody sinning against me over and over and over. I mean, at what time do you go, you know, I don't think your repentance is real. You keep using that word. I I don't think you know what that word means. (laughs) You know, at what point do you say, no, no, all right, enough. You don't mean it. It's not genuine. I'm done with you. Jesus says, no, forgive them. They say, increase our faith, Lord. I'm going to need a little bit more in order to do that. And Jesus says, no, this has nothing to do with how much faith you have. Look what he says. If you have the faith, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, how many of y'all have ever seen mustard seeds? They are, oh, good, good. They're, they're little, 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 teeny, teeny, tiny things. Just little, tiny things. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, verse 6, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Mulberry trees are known for having very, very complex and complicated roots. So you try to uproot a mulberry tree, good luck. I mean, you're going to need some heavy machinery. It's, it's, once, it's, once it's dug its roots in the ground, it's not coming out, you know, without a lot of complication. Okay? That's one thing. But then he says, and for it not only to be uprooted, but then planted in the sea, how do you, how do, you do that? You know, I mean, you're going to plant the tree in the sea. Well, you know, how, what, you're going to dig up. You know, the, the water, you're going to drain the sea. Well, how are you going to do that in the first century? You know, they're not going to drain the sea. They're not going to dig a hole and put the tree in it, replenish the water, you know, refill the sea. And all. I mean, I mean this, is, this is outrageous, okay? Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. The point that he makes here is that with even just the littlest of faith, you can do great things. Guys, the problem isn't how much faith you have. That's what we call an excuse, that's an excuse. Oh, no, 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 no. I can't forgive that person. Why? You know, I'm just not at that level. I mean, I'm still at beginner level Christianity, and I haven't made it to intermediate level Christianity so that I can, I can do that. I need a few more uh, bonus points. And once I get those bonus points and I upgrade to the next level, then, then I, can, I, can, I can start forgiving people who sinned against me. But right now, I'm just, I'm struggling. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're giving excuses for why you don't want to obey Jesus. And I'm not saying by any means that that's easy. It's not easy. It's excruciating. Excruciating. Cruz, crux, like cross. It's, it, it's like you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's what it's going to take for you to forgive. In other words, in order for you to forgive your neighbor, you have to recognize that you are not worthy yourself. Do you get that? Why don't we forgive other people? We don't forgive other people because we think that we deserve better. Jesus is saying here, no, you don't. You're a sinner just like your neighbor. And you have been forgiven much. And if you recognize the load that you have before God and how God so, so uh, uh, graciously at the expense of his son took the burden off of you, placed it on him, unleashed his fury on him so that you would not get a single drop of his anger. Instead, for all of eternity, you get the wellspring of his love and his mercy and his grace. If you recognize that, you recognize just how forgiven you are. Frees you up. 
to say, you know what? I'm not worthy of forgiveness either. And the Lord has been so gracious to me. If he has been so gracious to me, surely I can extend that grace to you. But they don't deserve it. Neither did you. But they won't love me back. There was no guarantee that you would love him back. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Do you see how being having the mindset of an unworthy servant frees you then to love your neighbors, even when they sin against you? But what about our relationship with the Lord? I think that's what the following story uh, is dealing with. In verse 11, look at verse 11. While traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices saying, notice what they say, Jesus, Master. Oh, don't skip over words like that. Remember how he said we were supposed to respond? We are unworthy, what? Servants. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. You see the connection there? Jesus is the master. We are servants. We are unworthy servants. Therefore, we cry out to him for mercy. Mercy is what undeserving people receive. See? Have mercy on us. They're lepers. They're cut off from society. They're cut off from the temple. They have, they, they have zero interaction with, uh, with, with society. You're not going to get a job if you're a leper. Uh, you're, you're definitely not going to welcome someone in your home if they're a leper. If they're a leper, they're, they're to go off into a leper's camp and they're to be there uh, uh, amongst other lepers until they die. That's their community. They have no interaction religiously. They have no interaction socially with the rest of society. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, Oh, the old black preacher could spend years just on when he saw them. I would, but then I'd have to start getting my, my, my black preacher voice, and, and I'd have to, you know, get the phlegm in the back of your throat, the ha, you know, that, I got to do all that, and I, you know. When he saw them, he told them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Wait, 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 how are you going to show yourself to the priests? You, you're not allowed back into the temple. You're a leper. Ah, unless by going and showing yourselves to the priests, you have to trust that somewhere between point A and point B, Jesus is going to do something. And so they go. It doesn't say that they went trusting him, but obviously to turn and walk towards the priest when you could be ostracized because the priest could be standing there looking at them with, their, with the signs of leprosy all over their body and say, no, you can't come in here. You're unclean. You stay right there. Don't come any further. Guards, get him out of here. You will not defile the temple. They're risking all of that. They're trusting that Jesus is going to do something. So they do. They go out in faith. 
It says in, uh, uh, in, in, in verse uh, 14 at the end, while they were going, they were cleansed. How awesome is that? They're walking. They turn. Jesus just turns them away. He says, go show yourselves to the priest. Okay. <laughs> you, know that, you know he's not going to let us in, right? No, no. All right. I'm just going to do what you told me to do. And so they go. And as they go, they start looking at their fingers they start feeling their faces, and they realize, one, I can feel again. Two, it's not raw and cut up and, and, and all of that. I, it, my, my skin feels smooth like a baby again. I've been healed. We, we're healed. And nine of the ten went their way. Except for one. Look at verse 15. One of them, seeing that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice gave glory to God. Now, I want you to just imagine this. You've got a guy who has been leprous. You know, it's, you see it on his face. You see it on his hands. He's probably, maybe he's got gloves on or something like that to at least try to keep, you know, from, from being stigmatized and, and all that in society. But when he realizes that he has been healed, oh, it's really hard to keep a healed person quiet. <laughs> oh, when he gets his healing and God has, God has cleansed him and God has taken the leprosy away, he gets loud. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. And he's running over to Jesus. It says he fell face down on his feet. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Y'all know this. Y'all watch Wheel of Fortune. You watch, you know, football and, and all these different things. I saw a game last night. It was the Bulls and the Hornets. Sorry if there are any Hornets fans here, but that game was awesome. And, uh, and, and, and they were down by... Um, uh, I forget how many points. They were down by like 10 points or something like that. I can't remember. Or, or six points, I think it was. Um, no, no, no. I know what it was. It was five points. They were down by five points with 13 seconds left. And uh, they, they got an inbounds play. The Bulls did. And they, sh uh, they shot it to this one guy. And he pulls up for a three and gets it. And they're like, okay, wow. They get the inbounds play. They trap him. And as they trap him, he loses the ball. The Bulls steal it, throw it out to Zach Levine. Zach Levine catches the ball, pulls up for another three, nails it with .8 seconds left. They scored six, <laughs> six points in 13 seconds. And you're just like, wow, that, that, that changed drastically. <laughs> and they're in Charlotte. And the whole crowd is just like, what just happened? <laughs> what just happened? The Bulls bench is beside themselves. Yeah! They're high-fiving, chest-bumping, and, and everything. Yeah! Yeah! I knew we could do it. I knew we could do it. That's what he's doing. Yes! I knew you could do it, Jesus. Yes! And he's on his face, and he's worshiping him, thanking him, praising him. And, and as all of this is happening... Uh, some things are noticed. First off, notice in the end of verse 16, this guy was a Samaritan. Which I think suggests that the other nine were not Samaritan. 
it seems that the other nine were Jewish. Jesus picks up on this. He says, hold, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up. Verse 17. Weren't there ten? I mean, I can count. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One. Where are the other nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up. Come on, get up, get up. Go on your way. Your faith. And this is where all these translations go bonkers. Because I'm sure many of you, you open up your Bible and it says your faith has made you well. And that's fine. It's just not the right translation. The word says your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Now, people translate it, your faith has made you well, because they're going, well, he's obviously talking about his physical healing. And so that's what he means there when he says save you. It means to save you from your, your, uh, uh, your leprosy. You know, saved you from your illness, from your sickness. And that would be fine, except what would be unique to this guy from all the other nine? The other nine were saved from their leprosy. It says in there, and right at the end of verse 14, while they were going, they were cleansed. So if they were cleansed, then why would Jesus turn to this guy and say, your faith has, has saved you, if obviously their faith has saved them too? It leads me to think that Jesus is talking about a little bit more than just physical healing. I think that Jesus is saying all of those guys were saved. They trusted in me. If they, they wouldn't have turned and walked away if they didn't trust that I was going to do something. They trusted in me for their physical healing, and I brought about their physical healing. Wonderful. I saved them in that regard with temporary physical healing. All of them are still going to die, and all of them are going to stand before the Lord, and all of them will have to give an account for what they've done with their lives. Only one trusted in me beyond physical healing. He turned and came back to me, and he gave glory to God. Notice, he turned back to Jesus and gave glory to God. What is he saying by doing that? He's saying there's something about you that goes beyond just a typical healer. There's something about you that I noticed that you could say the word and I could be healed from my sickness. You said the word and I, and I was from head to bottom cleansed. I was made whole again. I turn back to you because I realize that you are exactly who you say you are. You are the one true living God. And Jesus says, on the basis of your faith in this, you are saved. Why did the others go? Why didn't they come back? Could it be in this context that they didn't come back because they got exactly what they thought they deserved? They got their healing. They came for healing. They got their healing. They left. But when you recognize your unworthiness, hmm, perhaps the Jews didn't get it. 
after all, they're Jewish. Of course, God is going to do something for us. We're Jewish. We're his people. But for the Samaritan, God hasn't promised to do anything for me. I'm not in his covenant. I'm not a part of his, of his, uh, of his people. I'm cut off in every way, shape, and form. And Jesus had mercy on me. I must give praise to him because I don't deserve anything. And he gave me mercy. When you recognize your unworthiness, oh, how sweet mercy looks. And how sweet and precious the mercy giver looks. When you understand your unworthiness, you don't demand any thanks. You don't demand any praise for what you've done. Rather, you recognize all that God has done for you in Christ. And you are the one who gives the thanks and the praise. Hmm. So, what do you deserve? What do you think you deserve for all that you have done? What do you think you deserve? Do you think God should give you some type of special treatment? Do you think that you deserve a raise from the king? Or do you recognize that you are unworthy? That it is only by the mercy and the grace of God that you are who you are and you are where you are? And does it free you up to forgive those who have sinned against you? Does it free you up to give thanks and praise and glory to God for his mercy? Understanding who you are, an unworthy servant, changes everything. It turns you into a person of grace. And it frees you to give praise to the God of all grace. So my prayer for you, not just this Thanksgiving season, but for as long as the Lord gives you breath, is that you would spend your days loving on those who don't love you back, forgiving those who have sinned against you, and marveling at the mercy of our great God so that when you stand before him, you don't come in with your resume and bragging about all the things that you have done, but rather you stand before him and you say, I am an unworthy servant. I've just done all that you've commanded. And he will say on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. There may be some here who, if you look at your life, you realize that, that you've forgotten how unworthy you are before the Lord. And it shows in the way that you are with people who have wronged you, people who have sinned against you. 
Perhaps it shows in your thanklessness before the Lord. Perhaps in those areas, the Lord is revealing to you that you've forgotten that you are unworthy and that he has been so merciful. So right now, I exhort you to go before the Lord and and just admit it, confess it. Father, forgive me. I thought more of myself than I should. Before you, I am nothing. And your mercy is everything. If there's someone that you have struggled to forgive, name them before the Lord. Say, Lord, just as you've forgiven me, calling on me to forgive them too. Just as much as I haven't deserved it and you have given me grace, Father, free my heart to give grace to them too. And perhaps you haven't seen that before the Lord, you too are leprous, deserving nothing. God has given mercy to you. Take the time to give praise for all that God has done for you in this life and in the life to come. If you are here and you have not received this grace, please understand that our God is a God of unimaginable kindness. We serve the only God who loves sinners. Who loves sinners enough to to keep it out of the dark and bring it into the light and expose it so that he could get rid of it once and for all. This is the God we serve. The God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who would take your sin and put it upon his shoulders and suffer the punishment on your behalf so that you would be free forever. Not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. If you are here and you have not entrusted your life to Christ, today is the day. There is no greater time than now to give your life to him and trust in him for your salvation. And when you have received such grace, there's no greater response than to praise his name. We are unworthy. He is totally worthy. So may all praise, Father, go to you. May all praise go to your son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. All praise to your Holy Spirit. Set us free from our sense of worth. Help us to embrace our unworthiness. That we may be agents of grace as you have given us grace. We love you and we thank you. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name.
And all God's people said,